The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program, WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, its staff or management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on 89.3 FM WMKV. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for all the information, news, strategies, tips, and techniques that you need to know about to achieve financial independence through real estate investing. And today, ladies and gentlemen, in honor of the fact that you cannot turn on the television anymore without seeing something about our upcoming national and local elections, we're going to talk politics and we're going to talk politics with Charles Tassel, who has 15 years experience lobbying for, with the uh, um, uh, Lobby Works is the name of the company. And uh, I know that hasn't been the whole 15 years, but he has a lot of experience uh, in real estate issues, local, state and national. And what we're going to discuss today is issues you need to be aware of and that you need to be asking your candidates about. Uh, because, Charles, a lot of our colleagues are in real estate full-time. They have full-time real estate businesses, and yet our industry pays less attention to what our politicians are doing to our industry than any industry I know about. That's true. And oftentimes what I refer to is I often, often get called a firefighter. I'm called in when there's an issue that's exploding and it's already too late. And it's really up to us to go in early to find out what's going on and to pay attention to it. And that paying attention means more than just flipping on the radio once in a while. We've got to look at the papers. We've got to look at what's going on. And a lot of times that means the best thing to do is be involved before it's an issue, before it's written in paper. And that is the most critical aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, our, uh, our, our friends and, and competitors out there in the real estate world tend to be sort of lone eagles. We don't, we don't group together and donate to lobbyists the way uh, the National Association of Realtors does or the National Bankers Association does or all those AARP or all those folks we call special interest groups. And as a result, we also tend to be much, much, much less sophisticated about the process Mm -hmm. and uh, much less informed about what is going on that affects our industry. And I know what you mean by being a firefighter because... What happens is a story pops up in the paper that says city council just passed this law that's going to make all landlords pay X dollars every time Y happens. And everybody, everybody's calling going, well, how did the, how, I didn't even, when, when did they even start talking about this? So let's, um, let's start out with just some, some general, when you say be involved in the process as opposed to reacting to it when it already happens, what does that mean for us as individuals? The one thing to consider is this. Politics is porous. And what that means is anybody can get involved. 
that's both good and bad because anybody without any information about our industry, our businesses, any aspect of it can be fully involved. They can move up the levels of uh, different chains of, uh, I'll say, elected officials. Uh, I'll keep my other comments aside <laughs> from that. Um, but as they move up the kind of chain of command, as it were, they don't necessarily know about what we do on a daily basis or even overall what our business purposes are. And what they'll hear is something that is a problem, and they try to address it. Most legislation is actually a knee-jerk reaction. Do something. And that's what a politician has to do something, especially if they want to run again. And they're in the business of running again. So they will do something. Um, getting involved is taking those people who don't understand. And um, Kentucky Senator Dick Roding told me one time, he says, my door's open, but if you don't let me know, I can't help you. And it, it's important to understand, not only do candidates want to hear from us, and of course, candidates like to tell us about themselves, but they also want to hear from us. And contrary to popular belief, elected officials really do want to hear from real people. But what they want to hear from is constituents in their districts. Um, I, I have a, a letter that I kept. It was uh, shared with me from a congressional office. And it was literally a letter that started off threatening, I'll never vote for you again because of this issue. And it wasn't even a federal issue. It was a state issue. <laughs> and the guy didn't even live in their district. It's like, what, are you, what message are you sending? And that kind of goes back to our fragmented issue with our industry and how to get a voice and get a common interest. And we can do that as we get involved. And, and I mean, make no mistake about it, housing is very political. There are people who feel very strongly, not just about the house I live in and, by the way, the house next door is boarded up and, hey, Mr. City Councilman or County Commissioner, you should tear it down. But there's whole there's whole organizations of people who are very highly organized, by the way, and some of whom are professional activists. And that's all they do. And that's all they've done for their whole lives who um, who feel in a way about our folks <laughs> that is not um, positive. They, they uh, landlords often get blamed for blight in neighborhoods. Uh, uh, renovators. I've heard renovators blamed for dropping property values. If these renovators would stop coming in here and buying these houses and let homeowners buy them instead, our prices would go up. Well, not if somebody doesn't renovate the houses. Property but. and it becomes a bigger <laughs> blight and nothing ever happens to it. Correct. Um, you know, one of the interesting things on that is a lot of times in that knee-jerk reaction of do something, what gets lost is the, the positive side. The, typically, when you, it's, it's one of those simple things of when, you're, when you have a hammer, everything starts to look like a nail. Well, typically what happens is legislators have laws to pass. And as that's their only thing to pass, they don't really look at their other, other options, which are incentives, collaboration, leadership. Sometimes these are more subtle, but the impact that they can have is tremendous. Uh, I'll give you an example is calling together a group of investors to say, we want to target this area to improve. And suddenly you have substantial capital coming in there. It improves all around and, or it may only be say 10 of 20 buildings. But when you change 10 of 20 buildings in a couple block area, you've just changed that whole area and the demographic there as well. Very true. And that's, that's a way to get private investment into those areas. Uh, the, the, uh, another thing that politicians tend to want to do is get get grants, get uh, bond, get raise taxes in some way and throw it at a neighborhood. And, and it's almost a joke amongst real estate investors that for what some of these government groups and nonprofit groups pay to buy and renovate a house, we could have bought and renovated two houses 
on the same block and done a better job of it. And this is done with taxpayer money. So for all of the uh, libertarians in our audience, and there are many, that is libertarians, not anarchists, for those of you who don't know the difference, um, one way to, and, and they tend to, they tend to want to stay away from government because they just hate government. But one of the ways to solve some of the problems that, that libertarians see with overtaxation and too much government money going into things is go to the government, say, I'll put my money in, just get out of my way. Correct. And one of the things we often see is um, permits and inspections, the obstacles that those create a lot of times the government doesn't even realize what's going on. And I say government in general there because but it's local it's local offices. And if you talk with your inspectors and present to them, you know what? We could probably do some targeting in a specific area. This community has, you know, a four block area or an eight block area. Every community has them, much larger than four and eight blocks typically. <laughs> but you know, take off bite sized chunk and if you go down with a group of other investors who are willing to put in and invest in that area a lot of times they will be interested in saying, um, you know, we do have an exemption in our rule that, you know, somewhere in our regulations, we may be able to make an exemption for this area and make it a high priority and therefore and whatever their code term for it is and make it available for you to do um, less costly permits, uh, fast track inspections and, and do some of those opportunities. And even if they don't have it, when they start looking at the opportunity forward, Somebody will come forward with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what you just said is an ex a perfect example of what I mean when I say housing is political, because there are folks who probably aren't listening to this show, but <laughs> could have been, who would have heard what you just said as, oh, those investors want to not bring things up to code. They're trying to influence the city building department to uh, allow wiring that will burn these people's houses down and they don't care about their tenants and they don't care about their buyers. And for everything we say, and we have to be very careful how we say it, there's always, there's always somebody who is um, so passionate about uh, the idea of uh, good, safe, affordable housing being available to everybody, preferably at no cost whatsoever, uh, that there's there, there literally would be kickback to well, things like that. And part of that comes back to building that relationship in the first place. When a candidate gets to know the individuals, the group of investors, whether it's through you know roundtables, coffees, small events ahead of time, and then when they go into office and somebody says, well, these guys are you know the devil incarnate, and they say, no, I, I've talked with them. They're they're working hard. They're I've seen them go work day to day. They're at the different big boxes. That they're small boxes. They're hitting. They're working, and I've seen their trucks. I've seen the the paint on their on their clothes. I know what they're doing, and I've I've actually toured some of their properties, which is a great opportunity when you can say, "Here's the before pictures. Here's what we did with it. And by the way, yes, here are all the inspections. Here are all the codes because we want it to be safe, quality housing. You got an intro." And at that point, with your intro, you can then come forward and say, here's what we think is a solution. And bringing that forward as a solution is a critical aspect whenever you come forward with meeting with elected officials. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, you do not have to do this by yourself. There is a Real Estate Investors Association or Landlords Association in pretty much every city in the United States that's bigger than about 10,000 people. Correct. And this is the sort of thing where having an organization like that, although they're typically very inwardly focused, they're let's educate our folks, let's have our meetings and so on, can uh, come forward as not, hey, I'm, I'm Charlie and I'm an investor and I want to talk to you, but rather I am with an association that includes 100 
landlords and we would like to talk to you, which uh, actually, you know, puts some uh, put some some weight behind it and uh, also put some pressure. Now we've got 100 voters instead of one. Well, and that's true. And, and one of the things that's important is to invite those elected officials out to those meetings so that you see some of these uh, larger events. They see more than just, oh, it's one person or two or three people. They actually see the larger group behind it. And that will stay fresh in their brains for when you do come and meet with them and say, here's a solution we'd like to recommend. Mm-hmm. Very good. Uh, we need to take a quick break. It's real life real estate investing. If you wonder why we're not talking about tenants and toilets, it's because we're talking about something much bigger picture, uh, just as important, if not more so. And that is the politics of real estate and how you can get involved in a positive way to affect your local legislators and national regulators. Uh, views on what it is you do. If you have any questions or comments, you can call them in at 772-9658 in the greater Cincinnati area. If you're listening to us online, you can call toll-free at 877-772-9658 or just send an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing, where Mike, who's been engineering the show for approximately 16 years... Just asked which show this was. <laughs> On drugs. Yes, sorry. Um, <clears throat> so we're talking today about uh, something that tends to fire up our industry, but only in spurts, only, only when something bad happens. And that is the politics of housing, uh, something that... Uh, the housing industry is something that, of course, we understand at a very deep level. We understand renters and and what they need and what they want and 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 what the demand is, and we understand home buyers and and what they're looking for, and we understand foreclosures. We understand the foreclosure process better than ninety nine point nine percent of the politicians who are out there trying to quote solve the foreclosure problem. And yet we don't let them know who we are. And we're talking today with Charles Tassel of Lobby Works about how to change that and about in this election season, what issues and questions you should be bringing up with your favorite candidate before you decide how to cast your vote. Now, <clears throat> Charles, um, as you alluded to earlier, there are a lot of things that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis and that we have to that we think about and complain about that really are a direct result of who we're electing things like how severe are the building codes how uh, how huge are the fines if your tenants set their garbage out early or not in cans uh, what are, what are the what are the what's the notification process for mowing the lawn in a vacant property do they just post it on the vacant door where they know for a fact you don't live and find you immediately or do they all of these things are policies that at some point have come down from our elected officials and yet we complain about the regulators without going without going to the officials ahead of time on these issues and saying anything about how what sort of effect this is going to have on our industry so and and again Local level is what we've always worried about. I've been I've been doing this for 22 years, and since the day I got into real estate, people were concerned about what was happening at the city because that's what directly affects our our individual property. The state has always been number two, and the federal government's kind of been way out there. The federal government's kind of been, 
you know, they don't really, other than having HUD and stuff like that, they don't really get too involved in housing regulation. Only, of course, during this administration, we have seen more laws that directly affect housing and small business than we have ever seen from the federal government before. And more regulation. That's one of the key pieces to it. It's not just the law, it's the regulations. Um, Especially in the past, I'd say, six or eight years, the regulatory process has been ramped up across the board. And that's at the the city level, the state level, and the federal level. And those regulations, unless they're challenged, there's a broad range of powers that bureaucrats will claim. Um, I often talk about turf wars. And, And what happens is the bureaucrats will start laying out space where they want to control things and unless they're pushed back unless somebody's at least asking the question even and a lot of times especially with our industry and elected officials won't necessarily know to ask specific questions unless they're given that information ahead of time Um, that's where developing a relationship with them what will happen is the elected official typically call one of those friends one of those people and say hey what do you think about this and shoot them an email Here's, here's a document that's just came forward. And instead of reading about it in the paper after it's passed, you've got time to put some input in, give some counterbalance, and say, you know, that's an interesting point. However, if you did X, Y, and Z, it could really benefit the city rather than just hold back development or redevelopment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't actually fair to blame the Obama administration just now because a lot of this stuff actually started in the, in the Bush administration. But uh, just for example, from the federal government, that's uh, things that have gone into effect in the last two or three years, the SAFE Act, which uh, basically requires us to get a mortgage originator's license to sell our own houses on on cre- uh, with creative finance terms, which is, of course, a very high demand thing right now. A lot of people want to buy our houses on those terms. Um, Dodd-Frank, which made it even worse, (laughs) the SAFE Act actually gave you a few properties that you could sell until you ran up against their limit. Uh, The EPA-led safety rules that went into place two years ago. And the impact uh, those have, the feds really expected the states to pick those up, and the states have all gone, "Mm, I don't think so. (laughs) And and the thing is, uh, I'll give you an example for Ohio, for example. The fines in the federal level are $37,500 per fine. It does not have to be a substantial fine. It can be a paper fine, which means if you don't have the document, that's one fine. If you have the document and you have the wrong date and it's signed in the wrong spot, that's two fines. So, you know, almost not having the paperwork can almost be better for you in a limited <laughs> sense. I'm not suggesting that, but but states can actually pass them and have different levels of fines to them. They can also have what are called substantial fines, which means, or substantially based fines, which means there actually has to be something occurred. It's not a paper violation. And a lot of times what happens is the feds will come in make copies of your documents, and then send you a bill. Here's the violations you missed. Rather than actually saying, here's the work you're doing. Oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And if you don't do it, then we're going to come back and actually fine you. And that's a, that's a, that's a real shift in policy. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing that we are seeing very, very much at the state and local levels is regulation that is happening and or for the first time being enforced, or there's some some of this stuff's been on the books and it just hasn't been enforced. That it really is along the lines of a fundraiser, as opposed to an actual health safety issue. Well, that, that's correct. And here, here's the thing: the recession didn't just hit businesses and families; it hit the government. And when they're 
revenues, that means taxes, went down, they started looking around saying, well, how do we increase revenues? And whether that's on a program basis or in general looking through their laws and saying, hmm, you know, we could add some fees here. Um, one of the things that they're doing when they bring codes up to speed, they'll add some fees in there on that. Additionally, and that's typically on the permit side, but also on the fine side. And they'll increase the fees. They'll increase the fines. They'll also look at, you know what? We really haven't been going after X, Y, and Z. We're going to start going after that. And suddenly you start getting new letters in the mail. Here's this additional fine that you haven't been paying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, cities starting to have their health department officials fine you for grass on vacant lots when it gets exactly one and three quarters inches high, <laughs> when in the past you've only had the fines when it got out of control. Um, uh, 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 very aggressive attempts to collect taxes that that folks don't always know about, like cat taxes. And uh, some of my colleagues recently received letters from the state saying, if you have any security deposits that you have attempted to return that you have not been able to be returned, because of course the tenant moved without telling you where they moved to, uh, you must send that to the state, to our to our unclaimed funds department. Oh, and if you don't do that and you don't show us the report where you don't have any of those, it's a $12,000 fine. Yeah. You send them a report saying nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Or, this, this page left specifically blank. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So uh, we're t- th- th- those are some of the issues that, that are, are coming up on on the local, national, and state level. What other sorts of things do our listeners need to be looking for so that they can deal with them prior to the time that they become law or regulation? Well, let me, let me go with one that's already out there that people really need to be aware of, and that's R22 refrigerant. The EPA has come out and said, uh, we're not allowing any more of that on the market. What's out there? There's literally several million pounds of it already in ACs, and that means you're, you're, you're through walls to whatever's on the ground, uh, your pumps and such, that's enough. So you can recycle it, but we're not going to allow new stuff out. That's going to have an impact because if you start looking at, well, yeah, I've got a slight leak and I keep putting a little more in, well, the price of putting a little more in just went through the roof. Um, Some of the last uh, cans I'd heard that were running, uh, I think they're 30-pound cans, running over $300 when they used to be in the 50 and 60 range. So those kind of issues, you can go out and make sure that you're recycling it, make sure you capture it because it's going to be worth it. Um, if you don't want to go out and start changing out all your AC units to the new 410As and all that. So that that's one at the federal level just to be aware of because that can really impact you, especially if you have a lot of houses out there that have those AC units. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, cans of R22 on Craigslist is the new is the new Beanie Babies, it sounds like. That's it. Which which actually kind of goes to, we, we talk about the, the scrapper side of it, especially dealing with houses. We kind of moved around that issue with blight. But that's also one of the issues that there, there has to be something done. So how do we handle that issue? And what we're finding is different areas, whether it's city levels, state levels, um, feds aren't sure what to do with it because it's such a local issue. So it tends to be kicked down to the city council level. And that's an issue that how that is handled, and it's being handled very diversely from licensing scrappers to you have to have name, address, your picture taken to bring in a piece of copper. Mm-hmm. And how that is handled can really impact, especially people who are doing renovations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can sometimes save your money and for your PVC that you're putting in by taking out the copper and changing. Well, guess what? Now you've got to go through this whole process, almost like you're getting a passport. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, which I am in favor of. Uh, also, DNA samples for people who bring in uh, copper because uh, um, 
you know, again, very political police enforcement of that. It varies greatly, I mean, even even within our area here. Uh, if you if you want to steal some copper in Cincinnati, you're more than likely going to get away with it. If you want to steal some in Mount Healthy, they are going to have you on the floor with a gun to your head if they catch you. So uh, where do the police get their marching orders? The politicians. So uh, just just super important to be aware of this stuff. And, and as Charles said earlier, to be involved. It's it's a lot harder to make a complaint like every time one of my properties go, goes vacant, the central air gets stolen and the copper gets stolen. When you're calling a city council person who's never seen your face or only hears from you when you've got a complaint than it is when you've when you've gone to the candidate nights, gone to the mixers. Maybe Urea has held a mixer and and maybe they remember you from there. We need to take another quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about more issues uh, that are happening at the state, local, and federal level and answer listener questions. You can give us a call at 772-9658-877-772-9658 if you're outside the greater Cincinnati area or send us an email to askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're getting political today, and this is one of those topics that real estate entrepreneurs like to hear about, get excited about, and then don't tend to do anything about. So you might want to get out your smartphone, your your iPad, your notebook, and write down, this week, make an appointment with one of my local elected officials just to say hi and tell them what I do or go to my real estate association and suggest that we have uh, a mixer. This is a great time of year for uh, RIA groups. And they, you have to be careful if you're a nonprofit, but it is entirely possible for nonprofit groups to invite candidates to meetings. Educationally based. That's what you're looking for. You want the information and the updates. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter whether you're nonprofit or not, you can invite them in and they can speak to you about the issues. And that starts the process of getting to know them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, um, typically the the way that, <clears throat> excuse me, those are those are done successfully by the smaller groups. Because, I mean, there are groups around the, the state and the country that have 35 or 40 members and they say, oh, there's no way we will get the city council candidates to show up to this. Well, A, 35 to 40 people at a meeting is actually kind of big for them. Yes. If you live in a city that small, that's probably a, that's a big audience for them. And B, you can always team up with other related organizations like the local apartment association or if there's a local realtors. Yep. Realtors and home builders, both. Yep. Right. And just, you know, get, get, get your name out there so that they remember once they're elected, hey, that's right. That's that group that we had that mixer for. And uh, yeah, I remember those guys. They were pretty cool. They were pretty cool. So <laughs> then you can get your uh, issues listened to. Now, Charles, we have a couple of questions that have come in from listeners. And again, listeners, if you have questions or comments on what we're talking about today, uh, askvina.com. That's A-S-K-V like in Victor, E-N-A.com. Or you can call toll free at 877-772-9658 to bring your questions, to ask your questions. Um, Before I read this question, Charles, which is actually fairly sophisticated and deep, I want to let our listeners who may not be aware of it know that this person is not just being paranoid. (laughs) Um, The the specificity of anti-investor, anti-real estate investor laws that are out there are incredible. There's a lot of people who say, oh, I can, you know, 
I can duck the building department. They don't have to know that I'm, you know, mm-hmm. changing the plumbing. I just, you know, I don't really have to deal with this. I'm, I, I won't get the landlord licensing because I'll just have the, I'll, I'll just have the tax bill sent directly to the rental property and I'll just pick it up once every six months. And they, they think they can bypass this as opposed to deal with it. Examples of legislation in the last five years that have directly and negatively affected not just the real estate investors that they were aimed at, but the housing market in those areas. Maryland's foreclosure law. You can go to jail for contacting someone in pre-foreclosure in Maryland in the wrong way. Uh, North Carolina's anti-creative finance law that was passed about a year ago. Um, that requires uh, it requires disclosure for deals like lease options and subject tos, which I have no problem with. But it also does some some strange political things about letting folks get out of that deal, uh, letting letting people who've signed the deal with you get out of it within a certain period of time, even after you've invested money in it. It just makes it very very difficult to uh, provide that kind of housing. Texas's lease option and land contract law, which put um, put sellers of lease options and land contracts at a serious disadvantage in liability. Uh, Indiana recently passed what I would refer to as an anti-wholesaling law that uh, exempts realtors for some reason. It's okay for realtors to wholesale property. That's, <laughs> that's the advantage of having a large pack. That's the advantage of having an organized group out there that they go, oh, well, they're okay. We know them. They don't know this other group, so that's who they're going to be. Exactly. And, and you know what those four states have in common? No strong statewide real estate investors organization. And that's, it's important and critical. It, it absolutely is. So here's the question. What is the most effective means to challenge the local or state government's constitutional authority to even regulate a particular matter involving private property and trade? Do I have to begin by suing said government agency at the most minor court with jurisdiction? And that question comes up a lot. Yeah, we, there's this horrible law has passed. We don't even think it's constitutional. Now who's going to sue them? Well, <laughs> and that's, that's a good point. Let me, let me give my first disclaimer, which is I am not an attorney. I play one in committee many times, <laughs> but I am not an attorney. Um, but the first thing to look at is home rule. And that is something that gets thrown in our face over and over again. Home rule is the ability for a city to pass legislation and they have a very broad discretion in determining that legislation anything based on the quote-unquote health and safety of the residents that can do anything from dealing with rats on one end to bed bugs a growing problem that makes everybody itch to um, how tall the grass is to the inspections to whatever else they can come up with gets lumped into that and the judges are are prescribed to give them broad discretion. So to start off with any kind of lawsuit, you've got a very high threshold to overcome because the city is automatically given a broad threat, a broad discretion on home rule. So yes, you can go ahead and do that lawsuit. A lot of times what can happen though is if you come together and sit down with the legislators and say, I understand what your intent was. And that's very important to find out what the real intent of the legislation is. And then at that point, sit down and say, okay, if you fixed X, Y, and Z, and literally pull the bill, look at the bill, and figure out how to change it so that it will do exactly what they want without necessarily impacting you, and it's not a, it's not a, you're going to fully win everything. I'm an idealist at heart, but I'm very pragmatic. 
you've got to give and take and you've got to sit down and say, you know what, we can we can do X, Y, and Z because we know that that lets you know that we are the guys with the white hats on. We're the good guys. But the guys who don't do this basic level of information or work with you on these basic levels, they're the guys you really want. Go after them. And we support you going after them because we want safe, quality housing. And I come back to that as a mantra. And as you keep saying that, they start to understand that that really is what your concern is. And, hey, we do want to partner with you to go after those bad guys. And you can actually target that legislation around by changing the legislation so that it's not nearly as bad. Mm-hmm. And w- when you're getting to that level, uh, that's where it's really important that uh, our groups come together at the state level and that someday we actually get a national level <laughs> lobbyist. Because that, that <clears throat> we tend to be bad at dealing with the politics of the politics. We, we want to walk into city council. We want to yell and scream and show those SOBs how they're wrong and how they're going to destroy. And, and really, if you're sitting at a city council meeting where this is being discussed, it's too late. It yep. already it already was decided in the committee by not just the council people on the committee, but by all the housing advocates, all the neighborhood associations, the, the realtors have, have given their blessing to it. And, and if you haven't had a say at that point, it's no good. So uh, this idea of... Um, negotiating and negotiating not to get what I want ideally but to get what works for me and also lets the person who suggested this bill in the first place come out looking like a hero and be able to run for governor and one of the things to do on that is rather than going necessarily to the legislator first who maybe his friend or you know somebody in one of the groups brother or cousin or relation or neighbor go meet with the other organization that brought the issue forward sit down with them rationally discuss it what is it they want raise the issues with them and see if there's some common ground there and a lot of times what will happen politicians do not like trouble especially at the state level if you bring them a bill and there's people fighting over it that's not what they want but if two of you come in and say we'd like to move forward with this and we're sitting down together on this i've had situations where the state reps the bureaucrat will sit there and say well we might have a problem they're like i don't care these two organizations are agreeing on something i don't care what you say this is going forward they don't like the, the, the problems and the consternation. So if you can ever solve those problems ahead of time, meeting with those other organizations and sitting down rationally disc- discussing it, you can achieve a lot, of, a lot of your problems or make a lot of your problems go away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there is generally, for, for folks who are listening who might be members or leaders of real estate associations and saying, well, this sounds great, but we're not really sure how to do that or what to say to people. There's almost always uh, training available at the National Real Estate Investors Association's annual conference, and they're another nonprofit uh, group, and that's coming up at the end of June. For folks who might be interested in uh, taking a look at that, it's at uh, nationalrea.com. That's national, R-E-I-A.com. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the, you don't have to go invent this for yourself. There's people like Charles. There's other folks who uh, have been around that business of politics for a very long time who can who can guide you on what to what to go in and sit down and say because there's a very strong temptation coming from where we are that when we go sit down with what we consider to be a do-gooder organization who's completely anti-landlord and is never going to find any common ground with us that it just gets into a yelling debate instead of a okay so what you're trying to accomplish is 
get rid of the blighted houses. Well, what if we did it this way? What if you? What if your group and our group did a partnership because you can get grants and we can do the rehab, and also Voila. we could then we could we could fix up a house and we could give it away to a deserving family. How would you feel about that instead of going to city council and trying to get a law passed to tear down every house in this neighborhood, including mine? So training's out there, folks. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, after which we are going to answer your questions at 772 or at askvina.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today about politics, and we need about another three hours. That'll be okay, right, Mike? You guys don't need, you guys don't need your next two hours of programming. Um, this is just so important, folks, and, and we're starting to get a lot of questions here for Charles Tassel via email, and uh, he just handed me a questionnaire for uh, candidates that, that, that you or your organization, your real organization, could, could send out to various candidates, and there are some very interesting questions here that I think you would want to know the answer to before you voted for someone. Questions like, do you think rental housing is important to our community? What would you do to encourage or discourage the development of affordable rate rental, affordable or market rate rental housing? Do you believe that legislation with new requirements should have a phase in time for a hybrid of business and housing in the rental market? So it's asking, it's asking questions. I mean, you, you want to know, have they ever owned a business? Have they ever owned rental property? How many units have they owned? Uh, I love this one. Will you commit to refrain from negative campaigns about rental property? <laughs> I love that one because uh, it's a yes/no question. They can they can say nope. I'm going to absolutely not and one refrain. Of the, one of the benefits about this is even if you're a nonprofit, all this is is education. Mm-hmm. You're not saying vote for one person or another, but you can send a questionnaire out to all the candidates. And actually, if you send it to the parties, they'll typically diverse send it out and distribute it to the candidates. The candidates will then send it back to you, and you can just. Publish the results. Publish the results. Simple as that. All it's all all that's happening there, and uh, I know we're going to get requests for this candidate questionnaire, so we're going to send it out next week with the real life real estate e letter. If you are not on our distribution list for that e letter, go to askvina.com. That's a s k v like in Victor e n a dot com. Click on receive Vina's e letter and fill in your name and email address, and we will get you this questionnaire, which is is one that if you are at a candidate event, you should probably be asking some of these questions yourself. A question here from Deb in Columbus, Ohio. Sometimes it's hard to know why certain legislation is being brought to consideration. Is it right of people to know who, not the legislative sponsor, but the organizations that will benefit from the legislation is behind the proposed legislation? Well, the benefit from it, I think definitely should be, but are there rights to it? Not in any constitution that I'm aware of. Um, what you want to do is if you get involved and if you have a friendly council member to talk to, typically they'll let you know who's behind it or what's going on. And that's where somebody who's involved on a daily basis or more involved, whether it's a staffer or somebody, will usually give you a heads up. By the way, this organization is behind it. Stand back, it's coming forward. Or this organization's coming forward and it's just being thrown up against the wall to see what happens. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, it's surprising sometimes to see who's behind some of these things that are directly real estate related and the folks that are behind them are not directly real estate related as uh, as Bart Simpson once said it's the CIA in conjunction with the reverse vampires and you just, I mean you're just you're just shocked at yeah. at at sometimes what the what the um, 
housing organizations and neighborhood associations, the kind of coalitions they will put together that involve people that you don't even think have anything to do with housing, and yet they are fairly politically powerful in the area. So, <clears throat> And that's where coming down, making a rational suggestion, and having somebody who's already receptive to you in the first place can raise those issues or bring you up for more questions to delve a little deeper into punching holes in their argument and theory is really effective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, here's a question from JC in Las Vegas. Why do politicians so often pursue broad, ham-handed solutions, this would be one of our angry listeners, I think, uh, to perceived problems without regard for the consequences of their action? Do they not recognize that some of these laws have adverse, adverse effects that fall mainly on those who are meant to be benefited by the law? So, for instance, making it more expensive to own rental property makes it more expensive to rent. and right. it increases and, the price of the housing and causes more problems for the very people that they're trying to help. The, the, the point to that is making sure that you get in there and state what the issue is and how the impact is actually going to fall out. It's, it's the rule of unintended consequences. It's mm-hmm. as simple as that. And making sure that, that is, they are made aware because you are one of the experts in the industry. Mm-hmm. And you may not even feel like it. You may say, well, I only own five rental properties. I'm no expert. I can't go talk to these people about it. They don't want to hear from a guru. They want to hear from somebody who's doing it day in and day out. And, and, and that's you. Even if you're a part-timer, that's probably you. So, um, yeah, very, very important stuff. So what else have we got out there, Charles, that we need to be concerned about right now? Looking through, there's everything from smoke detectors, the difference between photovoltaic and ionic. That's coming forward, and one picks up large particles faster, the other picks up small particles faster, and that's the difference between a fast burn and a slow burn. In other words, something smoking and building up a lot of smoke. Um, that's coming as, fa- as, as well. CO detectors, mandatory CO detectors, those are coming at the local levels, and some of them, if you're not careful, they'll require all units to have CO detectors, and they'll require where they're supposed to be, even if it's against the manufacturer's re- recommendations, and you have to have it done in 30 days. Mm-hmm. Well, so. what what would our objection be to having carbon monoxide detectors in our rental properties? That does seem like a health and safety issue. What's the big deal? Well, there's definitely a cost to it. But the other side to it is um, in April of about 2008, I believe it was, they actually made a big leap forward in the, in the quality of the sensors. So they actually, they actually stopped having so many false alarms, which the fire departments actually hated when they actually come in with us and say, mm, you don't want to do this yet. It's not there. The technology is not there. But the difficulty is they start coming in saying, this kind of, this kind of CO detector, well, that may not be the, necessarily the best. And the other side is manufacturing companies are not consistent on where it should actually be placed, which means if you put it in the wrong spot complying with the law, you may now be in negligence because you didn't put it where the manufacturer recommended it. Mm-hmm. And now if somebody dies, it's not just you didn't have a CO detector. It's you intentionally put it said right on the box where you should put it. That's right. What else? Um, other things. There, there's property maintenance issues and licensing. Licensing is one of the biggest issues going on right now because it's a way for municipalities to grab money. They look at it and how can they fund their inspection departments, and then they don't have to fund it as much by doing these inspection programs. And the problem is when you lay it out and say, Look, uh, example in a local municipality, 10,000 units, they had 154 problem properties, but they wanted to go look at the other 9,864 or 5044. Why? You know, why would you do that? Well, here's the pro- here's the thing. They're getting money off from it. And requiring them, and this kind of goes back to the question where the gentleman asked about how do you sue on these? 
make sure that the program that they're justifying their fee with actually relates to it and asking them to see the numbers. And that's where a friendly person on the council can say, um, how much is this going to cost us? How much and how many inspectors is it going to cost us? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that and that's one of those issues that, you, as you said, it comes up all the time in cities all over the country. I and mean, it's probably the most common thing that we hear. By far. And the question that real estate investors always raise is, well, if it's a health and safety issue that you come through my rental property every year and check for carbon monoxide detectors and smoke detectors and tripping hazards and potential lead paint and whatever, why aren't you doing the same thing to every homeowner in your community? Because don't they also live in houses and don't they also have health and safety issues? Or something like the old executive office building next to the White House, which has cracked lead paint in the offices. I won't tell you how I know that, but you know, um, issues like that. But the other thing is this, when you're looking at these issues coming up, crime, schools, and taxes slash economy are always on the agenda. When you talk about polling, which is what the politicians pay pay attention to, those three issues are always on the highest on the agenda. So making sure you're aware of that and ready for it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, now, Charles, before Election Day, we'll do this again, and we will talk very specifically about um, what we what we need to be going in and saying to our candidates about our business before they're sitting in office. So sometime perhaps late this summer, uh, we'll come back and we'll give some some just grassroots lobbying advice, basically, to our listeners. Uh, appreciate your time today. That was Charles Tassel from Lobby Works. And uh, take his advice. Take the uh, podcast here and burn CDs and give them to your friends or send them to the podcast because it's important stuff. You've been listening to Real Life Real Estate. We'll be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing.